We're talking the walks of Southam today with the people who live here. We're eight miles from Leamington Spa, not much further from Warwick, and just south of Stockton, where the Oxford and the Grand Union Canals meet. It's market day, a rather tamer affair than it would have been in days gone by, I think, when Southam, now in the heart of rural Warwickshire, was on a major crossroads. We do have a chap living in the town today, a chap called Stan Hodges, and he tells us the story that his father, when he was a boy, remembers the last flock of sheep coming through. Len Gale and Southam had been on that drover's trail from Wales to London since Saxon times. The last big sheep drive came through Southam in 1912. They brought 3,000 sheep in one day. Must have taken all day. You can imagine the scene, all those woolly bodies totting through the town and the dogs barking and the drovers on their Welsh ponies shouting and the people flattening themselves against the wall to get out of the way. That, that was the last really big drive. Rini Cardle. This was before livestock was transported by rail or lorries, of course, and on the town trail you can get an echo of former times when you pass Welsh Road running west to east. It joins Coventry Street, which runs north to south, and that too is crucial because Southam was on the main coaching route from London to Birmingham and beyond. The main coaching station was the Craven Arms. The boys that worked there got the news from these different parts of the country first. They lived in Tattlebank, Tittle Tattle Alley, if you like. <laughs> they were the local newspaper, well, the local yes. radio, in fact, yes. probably, weren't they? Yes, <laughs> yes. I like that. Janet Cox. The Craven Arms is now flats there on Market Hill near Chickabiddy Lane, of which more later. Now, there are two mapped walks in Southam, the Town Trail and the Holy Well Walk, and you can download these from the Shakespeare Country website. We're off to the Holy Well now, which, with the help of heritage lottery money, has just been restored. Jenny Frith, who chairs the town's Civic Pride Committee, has been instrumental in its restoration. And with the others, we're admiring the work of Mr Duckett's sheepdogs, who are rounding up his ewes as we make our way down the new track through his fields to the Holy Well. It has an atmosphere about it, hasn't it? Oh, yes. I think everybody who comes out here feels that very relaxing peaceful you see the bubbles coming up by the waters it's where the the spring comes up it's a spring really not a well and it comes up from under the quarry and is forced up a layer of white lias which happens to come out here which is why the well was built here goodness knows how long ago the well comprises a deep semicircular basin feeding three ancient gargoyles which deliver the water into a lower rectangular basin Today the whole thing is gated and enclosed by a new palisade fence. The first time it was actually recorded as the Holywell or the Halliwellene was in 1206 when it was part of the Warwickshire Feet of Fines, which is, it was a strange way of transferring property in those days. And it, it was mentioned then as the Halliwellene and it was part of the Manor of Southam. A couple of years ago... If you'd walked up here, what what would you have seen? Well, there were old metal railings around here, like old-fashioned bus shelter, bus stop railings. The well itself was 
filthy dirty if there was any water in it at all, which some of the time there wasn't. If there was water in it, it was bright pea green, most revolting colour. The original source of the water was from a long way from here. In fact, it was from the quarry in, in, in near, near to Long Itchington. And we persuaded the authorities there to actually stop pumping their quarry to quite such a low depth. Well, they were concerned about safety because of the depth of water there. They were pumping it out. And when we explained to them that we think that was the source of the uh, water, they then agreed that they would actually reduce the pumping level. And hey, presto, our well started to flow again, which is what's wonderful news. It's beautiful so water. It's beautifully it clear beautiful water, clear. isn't it? Well, as I understand it, going back in history, it was so clean and pure that people could come down and, and bathe their eyes here, and it was reputed to have medicinal qualities. Now, the fact of the matter is, it probably was the only source of really clean water in the area, and therefore, for that reason, um, it was uh, deemed to be medicinal. On the other side of the town, we have, in fact, got a salt spring, and it's, it's a saline spring, and we had an old resident here, that lady used to be a, a town councillor here one time, who tells us stories about going to the blacksmith to have her teeth out and then being told to go to the salt spring to wash it because saline mixture would help the healing process. All I can say is thank God for the National Health Service. (laughs) The woodwork at the well has been designed especially for the space. There are carvings on the gates and an archback seat. The chap who made all this beautiful woodwork for us, Will Blandfield, designed both the palisades, the seats, the signposts around the well and the wonderful sculpture we've got in the town centre. Which, which we're going to go and have a look at in, a, in the, for very shortly. They, they all have this, this sort of shape to it. That, that I'm looking at the seat now, yeah. and it's the same shape as the sculpture or the yeah. artwork in the town centre. Well, you see, I always think it's like uh, a bishop's hat, a mitre. And I think I feel that way because I know that all this was holy land. Is it comfortable then? It was the morning before the opening when three of us were out here scrubbing all this palisade wood and scraping all the winter debris off off the stonework. By gum, were we glad to sit on that bench and have a cup of coffee. There's never been a better cup of coffee this winter. Well, if you're following the Holy Well walk, it's going to take you about an hour. And leaving the Holy Well, the next section keeps the river Stowe on our left and takes us towards Stonythorpe Hall on a track that was established thanks to... The local squire, who was in fact a chap called Tankerville Chamberlain, who, and his coffin was carried from Stonythorpe Manor to the church. And if you carry a coffin along a particular route, it becomes a public highway for 100 years. And that was in from uh, 1906 this happened, so until 2006 it was a public highway. So, but it was now run out, of course. <laughs> well, yes, but because you then fall back on the fact that it has been used for 100 years by other people. It's one of these, you get out of that situation, mister. <laughs> Wonderful piece of local irony, I think. <laughs> it's a beautiful walk. And, of course, you've got the joining just before the weir of this river, which is, now, do you say stow or sow? So, well, it was originally the sow, but, of course, like all things, it gets changed with time and history. It's now known as a stow. And the river itching come together yeah. just up the road yeah. here. Oh, yeah, just before the, the weir. Yeah. And for hundreds of years, just up here by the weir, a watermill stood. It was used a- as a watermill until the 1920s. Then it was uh, used for a short time to provide electricity to Stonythorpe Hall. But uh, it gradually fell into disuse. 
and eventually it, it got to be in such a bad state that, that uh, they thought it was better to dismantle it. What about Stonythorpe Hall itself? Stonythorpe Hall and the Stonythorpe Estate were owned by the same family, the Chamberlain family, for over 300 years. It might once have been a monastery. There's sort of local legend and traditions that there were monks at Stonythorpe Hall in very early medieval days. There's no documentary evidence for it, unfortunately, but uh, these traditions persist. A Victorian historian, a man called West, always said that there was a small set of Augustinian canons there and that they sometimes used the Holy Well for healing people because Holy Well was supposed to be uh, very, very good for eye diseases. Well, Stonythorpe Hall was sold in 1997 and part of the grounds are now the home of the Royal Leamington Spa Polo Club. But uh, on past the hall, the walk takes us through the polo grounds, out onto the road, back into some more very ancient settlement land, which is all obviously hidden underground, back past an old barn up on the hill, which might have been an old chapel at one point, between Stonythorpe and Southam. And then it comes back down the hillside, back to where we started from. You you can believe that that could be a a chapel, couldn't you? Because it's a beautiful view of the well, too. Yes, we did have a plan at one point that we might go in for restoring it. But I think having done the well bit, we're going to rest on our laurels for the time being and leave that for the future. So, from uh, where the circular walk rejoins the track to the Holy Well, we're making our way back towards the town to the first marker of the trail, which is at the bottom of a footpath that takes you up to the Warwick Road near the Stonythorpe Hotel and the Henry Lilly Smith Memorial, who set up the Provident Dispensary, the first of its kind in the UK. Well, Henry Lilly Smith set it up in an old cottage, which is no longer there, but it was quite close to where the Stonythorpe Hotel is now. And uh, he had a dispenser there, and people who couldn't afford expensive doctors were allowed to go. And uh, volunteer doctors attended on certain days, and if medicine was needed for them, this dispenser would make it up for them. They had to pay a very small amount, because he didn't believe in giving people things free. But uh, it was nowhere near the, the, the cost of the medicine, but that was the very first one in the country. And did that come out of the fact that people used to come here because of the holy well water being said to be um, good for eye ailments? Lily Smith, of course, knew about the holy well, and local people did used to go there with bottles and collect the water and take it home to bathe their eyes. So it probably gave him the idea. He also built a hospital for the treatment of eye and ear diseases. For now, though, instead of taking that path, we're looking up the hill, across open ground, towards the church. This was known as Berry's Orchard for many, many years. And in fact, if you look on some very old maps, that's what you'll see, Berry's Orchard, because it's obviously one of the, uh, the cider-growing uh, orchards. And in fact, I understand that um, on the menu in the House of Parliament in 1898, you could order Southam Cider. There were many orchards around the town. In fact, you'll see... the. In fact, the remnants of it, even to this day, you go to some of the housing estates around the town, you'll find some very ancient apple trees and pear trees and things of that nature, which you know, speaks volumes for what was here many years ago. But not one apple tree here, by the look of things. Not at the moment there isn't, no. Mm. There isn't. Well, what, what about the church? It's, a, it's an ancient church. It was built about 1400 on the site of an even older church. 
It's a very open and airy church if you go inside and it's got a tall pointy steeple with sort of gables on the side which is a Northampton brooch steeple which interests the church inspectors. It's a very fine building. You can see it from just about everywhere when you're in the sort of southern area, can't you? Yeah. Another use for steeples is okay. why horse racing over jumps are called steeplechases because originally they ran from one church to another the best way they could over whatever fences came between where they started and where they finished. Yeah. Shall, we, shall we wander up? Because there are some, there are some interesting um, things to see in the graveyard too, I think. Mm. And uh, in the graveyard, before we reach the church and before we get to the war memorial for the World Wars... There's a memorial to an old soldier from an earlier time. This is the gravestone of Seath Bond, who was a troop sergeant in the Hussars, and he, in fact, he says here he was one of the 600. And when they say that, they refer, of course, to the charge of the Light Brigade. Quite remarkable that he, that he survived he it. Survived. Not very many well, people that's right. did. That's right. He, he, he survived. In fact, there is a story that his granddaughter, when she was sitting on his knee when he was an old man, asked him about the scars on his arms. And he said, oh, they're sabre thrusts. Can you imagine that? Charging towards an enemy with your sword out and being cut on the arm, on the forearm. But however, he also served at Inkerman and at uh, Alma and at Sevastopol, all part, of course, of the campaign in the, um, the Crimean. I mean, a lucky, a lucky bloke to have got through all that. And, Absolutely right. And, and, and yeah. how old was he? Did he did he live to a ripe old age? He did, yes, he did live to a quite ripe old age. I can't actually see make it out on the gravestone, but he, I think he was well into his seventies before he passed away. Quite remarkable story. We're off to the library now, through the churchyard, through the Lichgate, and across the road to Will Glanfield's sculpture one of the newest additions to this ancient town, which is recorded as far back as 998 in a charter from King Ethelred the Unready. It delineates the boundaries of the manor, and they're almost exactly the same today. It's signed by Ethelred himself and a whole great line of archbishops and bishops and clergy. He gave the manor of Southam to Earl Leofwine of Coventry. And then when Leofwine died, the manor came to his son Leofric, who was the husband of the famous Lady Godiva. Which, of course, was taken into account by the artist who designed this sculpture. Uh, Janet reckoned that the motif uh, reminded her of a, a bishop's mitre, but others reckon it's much more like a Norman helmet. We entered the history of the town and the fact that uh, Lady Godiva and Leo Frick and Leo Fwine and all the other Norman earls and the, the, who controlled this area were so woven into the history of our town that the, the idea of a Norman helmet would probably be a good idea. That Norman helmet includes circular wooden bosses all round it. And for those, Will Glanfield recruited many Southam adults and children from the primary school. Tom's boss depicted a fire at the mill. First we had to do a drawing, either with pastels, paintings or crayons. And then we had to um, give our designs in. And he chose some of the designs and we carved them onto big blocks. They must have been quite difficult to work with. Yeah, sort of. They weren't that hard, but it was hard to carve through the lines. But, uh, who else has, has got one here? Where's, your, got where's yours? Um, the, we'll come round the back and have a look. Um, Which one's yours? The 
Minotaur up there. Oh, the Minotaur. Now, that's a brilliant Minotaur. Why did you choose the Minotaur? I like the expression on its face and like how the horns curve and its eyes, so I decided to choose that one. Yeah, I took lots of different chivals and hammering to get around the sides. I was going to say, this, you had to be quite careful, sort of cutting out round his head, I imagine, so yeah. that you got that the right sort of yeah, shape. if you make a light stake, uh, it goes all wrong and you didn't really get to start again. So you had to be really careful, and he was watching you every move. And <laughs> I bet he was, because he wouldn't want to have to give you another yeah. lump of wood. Yeah. <laughs> Did you enjoy doing it? Um, yeah, it was really fun, and it was hard work, but I liked it. Ah, oh, now, Katie, yours is interesting. It's got an eye in the middle looking out of a cross. Your drawing looked just like that, did it? It's like it's the same, but a bit different, like, in the on wood, because it, it was hard. Let's have a look, see what else we've got. Is yours yours? Yours here. Which one's yours, Jessica? Um, that one. Oh, now, that's an interesting one. What's, what is it? That's Peeping Tom when um, Lady Godiva was riding through the um, city of Coventry. Peeping out from behind some curtains, I see. Yeah. Ah, now, why did you come up with that? Um, I just I just liked it, like the way of his expression on his face and stuff. Yes, because he's got his mouth open with a great great round O, hasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> For many years, there was an annual Godiva procession in Coventry, a tradition that was also maintained in Southam. Southam Godiva procession was different from Coventry. It had um, different people in it. Of course, there was Godiva herself covered over with a white veil. There was also a lady all dressed in black with a black veil over there, called the Black Lady, and the procession was led by a man with a, a, a huge mask of a bull's head on his shoulders. And for some reason or other, he was called Old Brazen Face. We think that uh, it had some connection with prehistoric religion, and that he was the um, representative of the old male gods that were worshipped and he was dancing away backwards from the black lady who was the uh, representative of the female goddesses who took over and Lady Godiva herself was a sort of symbol of purity. This used to take place once a year and started from the where the Bowling Green public house is now and went all the way around the town. When did the tradition come to an end? The procession lasted into the middle 1800s and then it got so popular that a lot of unruly behaviour started to take place and people started getting drunk and fighting and so they reluctantly decided they'd give it up. And sort of standing here at the sculpture, you you can sort of imagine that rowdy procession coming down the hill. Uh, Not much changes, does it? Now, it wasn't only the children who got busy with their chisels carving the decorative bosses for the sculpture... A few extra were needed. Jenny, myself and Len here, we stepped into the breach, as it were, because we wanted a few more. And lots of discussion. You did the well, didn't you? I did. You, you did. I did a, a, a copy of one side of the Southern Farthing. And they were used as trading tokens between the, in the 1700s, apparently. This was a very isolated sort of uh, settlement. And currency, coins, probably would have been quite rare things, coins of the realm. So they had to produce their own local currency. So, so you did that on, on yes, your did, one. Yeah. And um, Janet, what did you do? I wanted to uh, remind people that we had cider growing here. So we've got a jug, the outline of a tree, and an apple. 
There are some very unusual things. There's a, yes. a, a, the ATC. Yes, the ATC were involved. But what I think was, and, and they did a, a very nice carving. Actually, the, the, the eagle with its, ear, um, um, its wings out. But the, the one up here, we have a group of youngsters in the town who, in fact, are junior firepersons. This young girl, her impression of Salem is the fireman's helmet. Oh, I see. There's an eye underneath it. I wasn't sure what that was. That's, so that's, that's the, the fireman's. That's the, the strap, and that's the visor that comes down when they're, they're facing you know, danger. Or so. And she's following a long tradition. Southam lays claim to the first volunteer fire brigade in the country. It was set up in 1818. In its early days, it was called out by a bugle, and somebody had to run round the the town blowing a bugle and this went on until um, the early 20th century my husband being able to play a bugle he was in the fire brigade and he he used to run around the town blowing the bugle to call out the fire brigade and his father and his grandfather were both captains of the fire brigade and um, when the fire engine was drawn by horses the horses who were used lent by the local farmers to, uh, to pull the fire engine, used to know the sound of the fire alarm and they would come to the gate ready to be harnessed to the fire engine. And of course some people who carved their own bosses for the sculpture were inspired by very personal reflections on Southam. And the one story I do love is this one here, which is a flower. Now, a young man and his wife um, had moved here, and they were so impressed with the amount of wild flowers we have in the town and around. And those are woods over there. You get celandines coming out like you wouldn't believe in, in springtime, that he, in fact, chose to carve the flower. He's, they have a daughter who's now only about 12 months old or so, and her name is Daisy. Daisy is going to grow up knowing that her dad carved that here. <laughs> I think, to me, that's wonderful. That's brilliant. And Daisy came to the opening as well. <laughs> her push chair. And a town like Southam wouldn't be complete without its ghosts. There are tales of an old gentleman in a smoking jacket who sits in a red velvet-covered chair in a house on the Banbury Road, a cavalryman from the Civil War on a path off the Banbury Road, and a lady in a long green dress who walks through a wall at the town's oldest house in Warwick Road, as well as strange goings-on at the Old Mint, next door to Janet. Originally, from behind the bar, steps went down into the cellar, and all the people that worked there, and there are younger people here today in Southam who will tell you that they could be working behind the bar, and suddenly things would come hurtling up the steps, or things would tip over, and they were all totally sure that the place was haunted. They even had the local vicar go in to try and clear it. And bearing in mind I'm next door, we got to hear quite a lot. And he came out of one of the upstairs rooms, having sprinkled holy water, presumably, and done whatever he did. And the door slammed behind him. He went straight out of the building because it was just too much. Are they still there, these, uh, these my, happenings? My daughter was in there not long ago and the um, fire irons started moving of their own accord in the fireplace. Yes, and she said, Mum, I really wasn't drunk. I'd only just got there. Weird, weird goings-on in Southern. Yes, I mean, I wouldn't have believed it until it... I mean, I'm looking at Len's face and he's not looking very <laughs> convinced. But believe you me, if you'd been there... Well, as a Roman Catholic, I suppose I ought to believe in these things, but um, I think just 
I just hope I can introduce you to one one day. I hope you can't, frankly. Coward. <laughs> it is now a pub, obviously, from oh, what it is a pub, yes. It's called the Old Mint. Isn't that because they minted the first... Yeah, well, they, they minted coins there. Well, they weren't coins, they were tokens. What happened was that the, the royalist forces um, asked the local gentry to donate their silver plate. When they say donate, it's probably a polite form of saying if you don't give me the old bash on the head or something. However, they, they um, donated their plate, and from that they carved um, tokens to pay the troops with. I understand they were mostly in the shape of a lozenge, because you can get more tokens out of a piece of sheet of, uh, of silver than you, uh, that way than you can out of round ones. The English Civil War started in 1642. The first battle was at Edge Hill, not far away on the Oxfordshire border. Uh, and apart from minting the tokens for his troops in Southam, Charles I visited the town on more than one occasion. Uh, and that's despite the fact that Warwickshire was predominantly parliamentarian at the time. Before the war actually broke out, the king came through the town um, about a year or so before the battle and um, they didn't ring the bells for him. He was very annoyed at this, so he sent somebody to lock the church tower up so that the, um, as a punishment. And then when he came back again, they did exactly the same thing. <laughs> and um, he fined them for not ringing the bells. So I think a lot of people must have been on for the side of Parliament, but the rector of Southam, a man called Francis Holyoke, was... Um, uh, very, very much on the king's side. And I think there must have been other people who sympathised with the king as well. Now, on the other side of the road from the library and the sculpture is what is now the chemist's shop. But in the 17th century, it was Southam's manor house. Well, I understand that um, King Charles stayed there on his way to the, uh, the first uh, battle of, of the Civil War. But, in fact, we would correct him in saying that, of course, the first skirmish on the opening hostilities happened here in Southam, as almost everything else does, of course. There'd been skirmishes for some time before that, but the day before, the 22nd of August, the king had officially raised his standard at Nottingham to signify that he was at war with Parliament. And this was the first skirmish that took place after the king raised his standard, so Southam always says this was the first official battle of the Civil War. Well, a skirmish it may have been, fought by local people with pitchforks, but uh, the records suggest that there were confrontations be between more serious forces on both sides during this opening salvo of the Civil War. You've got a few numbers, really. 9,000 foot soldiers, 1,100 cavalry, and 11 cannons. So because in those days the fields weren't enclosed, it spread out over a very wide area. And by midday, the Royalists eventually drew off and um, left the uh, Parliamentarians in the town. Rini Cardle inherited a fascinating collection of local documents and artefacts from her husband, which she's been adding to. One of its most prized items is a Civil War cannonball found some years ago in a field near the town. Just down the road from the old chemist shop, on the same side of the road... There are some wonderful names as, as I look through the map. Chickabiddy Lane. <laughs> that is just a beautiful name. Well, it, it, it's because that's where the chicken... 
um, okay. market was yeah, was happened. In fact, when you look at it now, it's almost un- unbelievable. It's so narrow. But in fact, they would have had crates of chickens there, one wall, standing on the other side, selling them. And if you go around all the other streets in Salem, they the, the, they're named after certain things, like Bull Street, for instance, was in fact the the cattle market. And it's, it's looking at it, even it's, it's quite incredible to imagine they actually had cattle there, but they did. So we've been down to the Holy Well. We've looked at the centre of town. Now to the farthest flung point on the town trail. It's Mearstone Park, number twenty-one on the map, a newly created park, but with ancient echoes, named after the original Mearstone that was one of the boundary markers of the Manor of Southam. The current Mearstone was brought to the site to mark the millennium. On the day that we installed it, this crane came out and they lowered it into position. And in fact, it has got a, a seam down one side, which we like to call the reference point, and it points due south. And there is, of course, a myth that uh, infertile ladies who appear there in various disguises at midnight will resolve some of their issues in life. This, this is a modern This myth. is a myth that has been fabricated in the year... Uh, all the way back to the year 2000. In fact, the plaque on the, on the Mearstone actually says that the original was there in 998 and it was replaced in the year 2000 to mark the millennium. So, in fact, it's quite amazing that it spans three millennium. And on that note, at Mearstone Park, with its views across rural Warwickshire, we'll take our leave. There are lots of things to do and see around Southam too. There are the country parks at Burton Dasset and Ufton, quiet lanes and a network of former railway lines to cycle down. And of course the Oxford and Grand Union canals, all with good links to the town. And if you'd like more information about things to do and places to stay, go to www.shakespearecountry.co.uk. My thanks to Len Gale, Rini Cardle, Jenny Frith and Janet Cox. Not forgetting the children, of course. I'm Jane Markham, and Talking the Walk is a podcast production for Shakespeare Country.